scripture today is from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. You can follow along in your outline or look that up, open your Bible, and uh, to John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We could probably just stop there, uh, but we won't. That's probably one of the most significant phrases in all of the Bible. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have the privilege this morning of hearing from you again. We often don't listen well. So I pray this morning that you would open our ears, enable us to be good listeners, good hearers of your word, that it might have some effect on our lives, how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we are. We ask that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Will Willimon. And uh, he's a Methodist bishop in North Alabama. He used to be dean of the chapel at Duke. And he's a guy with whom I would have lots of disagreements over all kinds of theological stuff. But I love to read his stuff, and he writes a ton. It's been said he's never had an unpublished thought. And I love to read it because he's a professional smart aleck. And I'm jealous because I want to be a professional smart aleck. And I, I, I just can't think of really good responses quick enough. Unless, of course, you're an elder here, then you'll get nailed pretty regularly. But anyway, when I was researching my dissertation, I came across this interview with Will Willimon that I just loved. And it was conducted by Leadership Journal... And the editors of that magazine asked the good Dr. Williman a bunch of questions. And he was still at the Duke Chapel at the time. And I want you to listen to his responses. Their first question is, how should today's preachers address the modern world? And uh, he says, I've decided the Bible doesn't necessarily want to address the modern world. It wants to create a whole new world that cannot be seen without conversion. And so if some people don't understand me when I speak as a Christian communicator, that's okay. It doesn't mean they're unintelligent or evil. It probably means they're not in that new world yet, and they haven't learned the language of salvation. And as a Christian communicator, I need to give people credit for not understanding me. I love that. It takes me off the hook completely. Okay, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you know, obviously you're not saved. 
So I don't have to be like intelligible or clear or concise or any of that stuff. So that's not exactly what he's trying to get at. But So they respond. They said, well, you don't want people to understand you? He said, no, not that. But I recognize they may not understand the Christian message right away. If my message were that Christianity is basically about being a nice person and being sensitive to the needs of others and being open-minded and affirming, they could understand that. Anybody who'd reject that is a fool because then we're not talking about special revelation. We're just talking about being reasonable and open and American. But true Christianity, the Bible, says there are good reasons for not believing it that Christianity is about being nice and sensitive and open-minded and affirming. He goes on, he says, I mean, Christianity is odd. It's against the grain. It's countercultural. It's always about the displacement of the old world order with the new one. No wonder people walk away in confusion. The gospel accounts strain to describe what happened. Don't make any mistake about it. They're trying to describe something unearthly. Death working backwards. So I can't talk about these eternal rebirth of hope or Jesus living in my heart. We're talking about a dead Jew, crucified, who came back to harass us. And it scares the heck out of us. And they respond, but many preachers try to make Christianity a reasonable option. It seems you're doing just the opposite. He says, well, I've tried it both ways. And the first approach that Christianity is reasonable is dangerous. But I don't watch myself. I reduce Christianity to being a good person, someone who's good for society. Christianity actually demands so much more. A good question to ask at the end of any sermon is, would they have killed Jesus for this? I didn't like that part so much. He says, and this I can identify with, he says, not all of my sermons stand up to that question. The death of Jesus would seem incomprehensible over some of the bland stuff I've preached. People would be more apt to make Jesus president of the university or speaker at a nice weekend conference. But no, people had good reason to crucify Jesus. They recognized him as a threat to the world as it was constituted, and he continues to be a threat. So they ask him, is the resistance to the gospel more intellectual or emotional? He says, we take a distinctively wrong turn when we make Christianity into an intellectual dilemma. It's a practical problem, a problem of living. One student now in graduate school in Chicago was telling me he's losing his faith. So I asked him, what's the faith that you're losing? He said, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. And his response was, so what? You don't believe in virginity, period. (laughs) You see why I would like to be like him? I just can't think of that stuff. He says, you mean I'm supposed to be upset over your intellectual questions? You're 19. There's a lot you don't know. Just wait a while. See how it all works out. And then he asked a good question. Well, why do you have to swallow stuff like this to be a Christian? Listen to this very carefully. He says, well, we ask you to believe in the virginal conception of Jesus 
And if we can get you to swallow that without choking, there's no telling what else we can get you to believe. (laughs) Come back next week and we'll try to convince you the poor are royalty and the rich are in big trouble. And that God, not the nations, rules the world. You see, we start you out on the small stuff, like the virgin birth and the inerrancy of Scripture. And when you get to believe these easy things, then you're ready for the tough demands of Christianity, which are not intellectual at all, but practical. How do I live this faith? What does the Lordship of Christ mean in my life? And they respond, are you saying we shouldn't preach about behavior? Saying, I'm saying less to some of those issues and more for getting straight into who we are and how odd it is to follow Jesus. One of the reasons the world ignores Christians is because it doesn't hear anything from us it can't hear from dear Abby. And people give up on us because we're bland. I believe the gospel is true and it's a marvelous thing to give your life to. And so I try to say, all right, folks, just for this morning, let's all trust this word from God more than we trust our feelings or our experiences. The gospel isn't trying just to explore your experience, but to engender a new experience. It's trying to take you someplace you've never been. Let's see where that takes us. And believe it or not, I find that attitude pretty refreshing. And I thought of that interview because of today's passage. Because today's passage is doing exactly that. It's trying to take you someplace you've never been. Got to remember who John's writing to. All the New Testament is done. They've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They've got all of Paul's stuff. And now John is writing. He's the last living apostle. And the whole Christian world, all the churches of that time, are essentially waiting with bated breath to hear what John the Elder has to say. And he's saying, I'm going to take you someplace you've never been. He's going to do it with this book. So let's see where that takes us. Since we're being unconventional today, we're not going to follow the verses in order, and actually I'm going to skip one of them and get to it next week. Uh, So you have to listen carefully and see what happens. We're going to start very briefly at the last verse in the passage, verse 18. No one has seen God. That should be the first blank there in your outline. You have to work really hard to get all the blanks today. No one has seen God. What fools we make of ourselves by denying what we can't see. What fools we make of ourselves by denying what we can't see. And John poses a problem when he says here, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. And the problem he poses is this. If you can't see God, how can you know God? After all, God is invisible. And that's the problem. That's the question that John is setting out to answer in this passage, but also in this book. The first part of the answer comes if we look at at verse 17. God revealed himself in the law. 
God revealed himself in the law. He revealed himself in the law of Moses before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean the law of Moses is contrary to grace and truth, that the law is not gracious or not truthful? I don't think so. What verse 17 says is that before the reality of grace and truth came through Jesus, a witness to that reality came through the law of Moses. And the reason I don't think verse 17 intends to make a sharp contrast between the law of Moses and Jesus is what the Apostle John says about Moses and the law and Jesus and other places in this book. In John 3.14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here Moses does something uh, gracious and truthful that points ahead to the grace and truth of Jesus. Some of you may remember when I preached from that passage in Numbers back in January. It was the snake's sermon. I know how fond everybody is. Of snakes. Another example is in John 5. Jesus says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote in me. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here Moses is in complete harmony uh, with Jesus and writing truth about Jesus and his grace. Finally, one more, John 6. I think I lost something here. I'm back. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. This means that the manna in the wilderness was a gracious gift of God, but it was not the true bread. It was a means of grace, but it was not the reality of grace itself. It was a witness to the grace uh, to come, a foretaste of Christ. And so John's point in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, is that the law was not the reality of grace and truth themselves. Jesus was. The law was a witness to grace and truth. Jesus was the fulfillment, not the replacement of the law of Moses. I mean, the law makes demands. It's hard and cold and unyielding and without mercy. It says things like, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it doesn't give you any exceptions. There's no circumstances. It doesn't say, except in these cases. And it's, you know, one of those real black and white kind of things. It's just there. And what John is saying in this section, in this verse, is that the law is the demand, but grace and truth are the supply designed to meet that demand. That law and grace are not contradictory, they're not uh, opposing principles, but they supplement one another. Law makes the demands rightfully and justly, and no one can meet them but grace and truth is given in order to meet that demand. 
If we look close, we can even see this in the Old Testament. If you remember Exodus 20, when uh, the Ten Commandments were given, this remarkable account of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, there was smoke and thunder and earthquake and fire and fear and trembling. But in the very next section of Exodus are the detailed plans for the building of the tabernacle, which was God's provision to meet the demands of the law. So first we have God as invisible, and second, God revealed himself in the law of Moses before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. Third, verse 14, God became man and lived with us. God became man and lived with us. So your three blanks so far are God, God, God. This verse contains something new and startling when it was first written. And yet when we read it 2,000 later, it's years later, it's become kind of commonplace. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the great sentence for which the Gospel of John was written. It tells us, as inexplicable and mysterious as it may be, that God became man. Now, to hear the full force of that verse, you have to go all the way back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God, verse 1, the Word became flesh, verse 14. If the Word was God and the Word became flesh, then God became flesh. God became human. Jesus Christ was human, and Jesus Christ was God. We accept that, a cardinal tenet of our faith. But it's hard to understand fully God, fully man at the same time. But John in his letter says this fact is so fundamental to our faith that a denial of it constitutes anti-Christian heresy. 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And that truth is so central to our faith. If you want to test any other religion or cult or group or whatever, you have to ask yourself, what do they teach about Jesus? Was he God made flesh or not? It's one of the critical tests of heresy. And as John wrote this verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. No doubt he's referring to all those years of Israel's wandering in the desert. And he's making the point that even though those were great days for Israel, in our day something much better has happened, and it's happened for all men, not just for Israel. We know that John is making this contrast because of an unusual word that occurs in this verse. It doesn't look so unusual to us. The word is dwelt. And it's the word for set up a tent. That's what it literally means in Greek. So we could translate this, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And some versions 
sort of do that. They say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know, I used to think that sort of implied a temporary status. But when I looked up all the places this word occurs in the New Testament, I found it doesn't imply temporary status at all. In Revelation 21, at the very end of the Bible, where there's a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity uh, are, are with us and they're described, it says, behold, the dwelling place, the tent, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell, pitch his tent, set up his tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And this uh, word dwelt or pitched a tent or tabernacled is particularly significant because it refers beyond any question to that portable wilderness tabernacle of the Hebrew nation. The tabernacle was the center of their worship, the single most important object in their camp. And everything about the tabernacle, its dimensions, its furnishings, its colors, its functioning, even the arrangement of things was designed to communicate spiritual truth. Hence, many of its functions are previews of the functions that Jesus would fulfill when he pitched his tent among us. I also think it's interesting that the Greek verb to tent is skinu, S-K-E-N-O-O. It's in John 1.14. It's one of those rare times where the Greek word is very similar to the Hebrew word, which is transliterated S-K-N, because there's no vowels, from which the Hebrew noun Shekinah is derived as the technical term for describing God's presence, God's dwelling among us. And that Grammatical connection has become very vivid if we go back to the construction of the tabernacle in Moses' day. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. And in the center of it was the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Shekinah glory was that symbolized God's presence. And Shekinah is what we would call intense light. And at times it was hidden by the cloud that spread out over the tabernacle. And other times it flashed out in judgment against some evil in the camp in Israel. And the glory, the Shekinah within the Holy of Holies, symbolized the presence of God. There's a lot in that little word, dwelt. And so John, who knew that God had been revealed in the flesh in Christ Jesus, says, we have seen his glory. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people, and it was also the place of revelation. It was the place where God met with them and spoke to them. And for this reason, the tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting, a phrase that occurs just you know scores of times in the Old Testament. The second tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the place where God meets with us today and speaks to us. The tabernacle is a picture of Jesus, the meeting place where God's demands are fully met in terms of the sacrifice 
of blood or of a life poured out. And so John saw in the coming of Jesus the fulfillment of the tabernacle, God's provision to meet the demands of the law. And I think when you read about Jesus tabernacling with us, pitching a tent with us, dwelling with us, it implies that God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants to spend uh, a lot of time with us. He wants a lot of interaction with us. If you come into a community and build a, a huge palace with a wall around it, that says one thing about your desire to be with the people. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, you'll probably have to use my bathroom and eat at my table. And that's why God became human. He came to pitch a tent in our human backyard so that we would have to deal with him a lot. God is invisible. He revealed himself in the law, and then he became human and set up his tent among us. And then we see in Jesus, we see God. God, 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 God. Those are your blanks. Verses 14 and 18. I'm not going to reread those. But I want you to look at that phrase, phrase that we have seen his glory. Who does the his refer to? It refers to the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Verse 1, the word was with God. The word was God. So in Jesus, we behold God. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. And that's an astounding new thing, that the word of God could enter into our history as a man so that men and women could see him. In Jesus, men and women could behold God's glory. Remember, in the Old Testament, you couldn't look at God directly. I mean, Moses got to see God, and God said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and you can only see my back, because surely to look at me, you will die. But now, in Jesus, we see God. John's writing something radically new and different. God came to live in a tent so that we can watch him more closely. God wants to be seen and God wants to be known in his son. And so we see in verse 18, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Even though uh, God is a spirit and invisible, according to John 4, he's now revealed himself in an utterly unique way by the incarnation of himself in his son Jesus. In Jesus, we see God. You know, you don't have to wonder today if there's a baby in the womb of a woman who's, you know, 8, 10, 12 weeks pregnant. You don't have to wonder what it looks like. We have sonograms and pictures and videos and models and detailed physiological descriptions. And now so it is with God. You don't have to be in the dark about God. He's gone beyond parchment and paper. He's gone beyond tapes and CDs and MP3s. He's gone beyond videos and DVDs and even beyond live drama. He's actually come and pitched his tent 
in our backyard and summons us to watch him and get to know him in the person of his son, Jesus. When you watch Jesus in action, you watch God in action. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. When you come to know what Jesus is like, you come to know what God is like. So what is God like? What do we see when we see Jesus? And John's very clear what he wants to stress here. We see the glory of God's grace and truth. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the point is, the essence of what God reveals about himself in Jesus is first that he's true. He's real, more real than anything else you can see. Truth is a manifestation of reality, the unveiling of what's actually there, the stripping away of all the illusions, veils, shams, phoniness, facades, getting down to what's actually there. You know, whenever uh, my father wanted to say some sort of hard and straightforward words to me, as he did occasionally when I was growing up, he would say, it's time to get down to brass tacks. I have no idea what that means or where it came from, but I knew whatever came next was serious. And that's what God is saying to us. It's time to get down to brass tacks. I have to look up what that all means. And the next thing he says is Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's the ultimate revelation of what's really real, what is true truth, to borrow Francis Schaeffer's phrase, real reality. And that's the glory that John saw in Jesus. In a sense, everything that looks to us so real is like a short dream. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God is truth. God is reality. That's what we see in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly, God is grace. God is free and overflowing and lavish in his goodness to sinful creatures. That's grace. That's the essence of God's reality because nothing fulfills or reveals the fullness of his deity more than grace. He is full, happy, and sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us to meet his needs. But he's surging with infinite energy and fullness to meet ours. And that's grace. In Jesus, we see God. And we know what he's like. He's the true reality and the fullness of grace. And the good news is not only do we see grace and truth in the person of Jesus, not only do we see grace, but that in Jesus we get grace. That's the last blank. Change the word. Sorry. Verse 16 and 17. This is the practical truth. What's the connection between all of this revelation and revealing in you? And we get the answer here. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
The first thing that John says is revealed in Christ was grace, God's grace, the unmerited favor of God towards humanity. Great preacher Harry Ironside once wrote, grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. The Bible says it, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God is gracious towards us, not on the basis of what we've done, but solely because it's his nature to be gracious. In one sense, all men are recipients of God's grace. It's what theologians call common grace. All the blessings that people enjoy are the result of God's grace. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're still a recipient of God's common grace, whether you acknowledge it or not. If you enjoy good health, that's common grace. If you're not on the poverty rolls, but enjoy the comfort of a home and plenty to eat, that's common grace. If you have a good job and you can hold it down because of your abilities and hard work, that's common grace. It rains on the just and unjust alike. That's common grace. There is no person alive who hasn't been the recipient of God's common grace in some way. And if you think that it's not of grace that you receive blessings, but that you deserve them, you're merely showing your ignorance of spiritual things. And yet if common grace is wonderful, which it is, the grace shown in Christ Jesus is more wonderful. It's saving grace. This is the grace that doesn't merely bless us for a certain limited time, this week, this month, this life. It redeems us for all time and eternity. It transforms us from what the Bible calls children of wrath into children of God. So God came not just to show us grace, but to give us grace. And we must receive it. God doesn't just want to, I know this is going to be hard for Presbyterians to handle. God doesn't just want to stock your head with knowledge. A lot of nodding heads. You know, that's a Presbyterian amen. He wants you to receive that grace and truth. He wants you to experience that grace and truth. He wants you to give you a, a foundation of truth and reality to stand on so you don't cave in under the pressure. And you will have pressure. Many of you have had lots of pressure. There's more coming. He wants you to treat you with grace, to forgive all your sins, all of them, to take away all your guilt, to give you a clean conscience to help you with your problems, to give you strength for each day, to fill you with hope and joy and peace. Isn't that why he pitched his tent among us? Isn't that what grace is all about? A great example of this grace working in someone's life, an amazing practical way is in the life of John Newton. Many of you know the story of John Newton. Uh, in his very early years, John Newton was raised in a Christian home in England. But his parents died when he was six, 
and he was sent to live with an unbelieving relative. And there Christianity was mocked and John Newton was abused. And to escape these conditions, he, he ran away and joined the British Navy. And he fell into gross sin. It gained an immense hold on him. And he eventually deserted from the Navy. And he went to one of the worst areas of Africa. And as he tells it, he went there for only one purpose. And that was to sin his full. To sin his fill. To get as much sin as he could. And he fell in with a Portuguese slave trader. And when the trader went away on slave hunting expeditions, as he often did, the power and the compound passed to the slave trader's African wife. And she hated white men. And she took out her venom on John Newton. And he was beaten and cruelly abused. So much so at times he was forced to eat his food off the floor like a dog. And so after a time, he fled from that compound, made his way to the coast, and he signaled a slave ship. The captain was disappointed when he learned he had no uh, ivory or slaves to give to him, but he found out that Newton could navigate a vessel from his time in the British Navy, and so he made him a shipmate. But even then, Newton kept getting into trouble. One day, he broke into the ship's supply of rum, and he got so drunk that he fell overboard. And he would have drowned if not the first officer on the ship saved him by thrusting a harpoon into his thigh and hauling him back into the ship. Thank you for that. (laughs) The harpoon made such a wound that years later, Newton could put his hand into this fist-sized opening. And of course, as the story goes, it was near the end of one voyage as they were nearing Scotland They ran into bad weather. The ship was blown off course and began to sink. And Newton was sent down into the hold to work the pumps. And he was terrified. He thought surely the ship would sink and he would drown. And for days he worked the pumps. And as he pumped the water out of the hold, he began to cry out to God. And Bible verses about God's love and the death of Christ that he'd heard as a young child and thought he'd forgotten, all came back to him. And as he remembered them, he was miraculously transformed. He was born again. He received God's saving grace. When the storm passed and he made it back to England, he went on to become a well-known preacher and teacher of God's word. And through this experience became a great proclaimer of God's grace. And of course, we remember John Newton Best for these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Newton was a great preacher of God's grace, for he'd learned, as all Christians learn, that God is exceedingly gracious He'd been assured of this truth as he thought about the Lord Jesus through whom God's grace is known. And like John Newton, those of us who are most aware of our own sin and need, who can truthfully sing that saved a wretch like me, who most deeply feel the wonders of God's grace that's reached out and saved even us, are those most likely to talk about God's love in Christ Jesus. 
because we are the beloved. One so loved by him that he will change us and transform us by grace alone. And so we need to believe that not just that the gospel is true, but that it's true for us. It'll make us people who've been transformed by the love of Christ. And can have that same love for all those unlovable people around us. Families, neighbors, bosses, students, friends. Even people at church. And so perhaps, just this morning, let's all trust this word from God more than we trust our feelings or our experience. The gospel is trying to take you someplace you've never been, into the depths of God's grace. Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.